commercial better than you were singing at worship. What does that say about where we're going here? Well, welcome to Impact Church in our Vintage Love Series. This is week two in this relationship marriage series, and I'm going to give you just a little bit of a review, and since my wife's going to be joining me, and we've got a lot packed in today, it's going to be a very short review. Vintage is an interesting word. It's one of those words that's changed over time, and today it applies not only to cars and clothing. It, it seems like people mostly use it for clothing. Way back it was used for wine. You guys remember I said that last week? A vintage wine, you know, a, an 1875 bottle of unopened, of course unopened, opened would be rather stanky by then. So uh, it refers to a good year, a vintage year, an original, superb, superior, good quality uh, type of wine. Today it seems to be used more like anything that's just best. Uh, anything that's, um, hey, when they made the original, nothing beats that. When they made Martin guitars back in the late 20s and 30s, nothing beats those guitars. When they made Stradivarius violins 200 years ago, nothing beats those. Even precisely made, machine-made violins today can't beat the original, the vintage Stradivarius violins. Well, I'm going to put a little bit of a twist in this because this series is modern vintage, Modern vintage, and I tried to let you know a little bit of what we're talking about by dressing the modern vintage role, okay? Jeans aren't modern, right? Who's wearing jeans today? Raise your hands. Wow, everybody. So uh, jeans aren't modern, but it is a modern idea to actually put holes in them or buy them with holes on purpose. Nobody would have, the original jeans were, were basically when people worked in the mines, like almost 200 years ago, Levi uh, developed a, a, a real durable kind of material and called them Levi's and people were, and they would never buy them with holes because holes are going to come soon enough. So it's a modern vintage thing, sort of a mixture. Boots aren't anything new. You like my boots? Yeah, boots have been worn for, okay, three of you like my boots. Tough. I'm wearing them. I'll wear them every week until you all like them. But these are like biker boots. The biker boot idea is a little bit more modern than just the boot idea. What else? Got a watch on. Timepieces aren't modern, but Timex triathlon watch is kind of modern. They have triathlons probably even like 30, 40 years ago. So we're mixing a little bit today, and uh, <coughs> my wife's going to talk about a side of this modern vintage thing. And we're a little different too, so you'll see the mixtures there. I'm a little bit country, she's a little bit rock and roll. It's that kind of thing. Raise your hand if you remember that at all. I just want to be, a, okay, thank you, because that, that was like the 1800s, Donnie and Marie. Some of you are going, what, what is he talking about? Is he, is he uh, just, it's old, old. I'm older than dirt itself. Well, um, taking the mixing of ideas and styles and applying it to relationships, here's the, the basic theme for the next, well, for the whole series here. The question is, we talked last week about a perfect designer. You guys remember who that is? Then tell me. Who's the perfect designer? Wow, there's one mumbling person up front. The rest of you, 
I gave you, I gave you like, I, I think I had a chalkboard, crayons out, that kind of thing. It was real easy. Who's the perfect designer? God is the perfect designer. And so what he designs originally is perfect, right? But there's an imperfect designer. I talked about this last week. And so what he designs is, well, first of all, he can't create Satan. So he just takes what's already been designed, tries to copy it, but he puts a flaw in it that'll hurt us. So we talked about the perfect designer and the imperfect designer. So the big question of this series is, as we morph ideas and as culture kind of moves along and we think we have better ideas than God, the question becomes, does God's original ideas about relationships and marriage, do they still work in a modern world? Are they, are they still the best way to go? And some of you church people go, and the answer is always Jesus, and the answer is always yes. On, on the, well, I, you know, I don't know. The culture looks at the church today, and a lot of times their answer is that doesn't work anymore. Or maybe some of it works, but not all of it. So I'm going to pick and choose a little bit what I want to use and what I don't want to use. So does God's vintage idea of marriage still work in the modern world? <coughs> when it comes to marriage, there are many varieties today. You don't have to write these down. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but let me give you some of these and think about it. When people approach marriage, when people are married, they have all kinds of things like some are prearranged. Did you know that still goes on? Raise your hand if you were a prearranged marriage. Now, how come like 10 hands went up and then they went down? Are you proud slash ashamed of the, okay. We have some prearranged marriages here. That's frightening. All right, next. Some have long courtships. I mean, it used to be back, you know, in the olden days. I'm talking about like over a thousand years. Courtships would last for years sometimes in, in these arranged marriages. But today, sometimes courtships are long, but that's called a guy afraid of commitment, right? You know, seven years I've been dating her and we've been engaged. That's, that's a different, some are long courtships. Some are spontaneous, all right? Elvis, Vegas, that was, you know, you just, you're out one night, the next day you're married. Some are spontaneous. Some have religious foundations. Got a whole list here. Some are barely legal. Don't want to go into that. Some become legal over time, common law marriage. Some have a huge age gap. Anna Nicole, was that her name? Married like a 190-year-old man when she was, I don't know, 12 or something. Some aren't traditional. Some are between same sexes today. Most, 99.9% .9 are not. They're heterosexual. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying this is right, this is wrong. I'm just giving you the list. And, and, and about 100 years ago, the list of marriages would have been about one or two items. Look how long this thing is getting here. Some are just plain bizarre. One girl I read about, this is about two years ago, I read about a girl who married a roller coaster. She married a roller coaster. I don't think it was legal, but she did. So, you know, she had a little ceremony. She loved a roller coaster. She wasn't right upstairs, but she married her favorite roller coaster. Google it. It happened, okay? I didn't make it. I, I read of a guy who married his dog because he said he couldn't, couldn't get along with any woman that he ever dated, and his dog was his best friend, so he married his dog. Wow, that's weird. Some marriages are built to last, some are set up, believe it or not, some are set up for failure like they're a house, building a house of cards and then turning on an industrial fan right next to it. Poof, they're gone. I mean, if you look at them, you just go, that, I mean, that thing was built to fail. Really, I could go on and on, but today what I want to do in the interest of time is I want to boil it down to two categories that we're going to be looking at. This part you can write down, all right? We're going to look at those that last. I mean, you can actually put all, the, you can put all of these in a pile and, and you can have two piles here and you can pretty clearly see that here's the ones that last. Real easy. And here's the ones that don't. The ones that last have one main thing in common, and you do want to get this down. It's going to be really simplistic, but studies, they'll blow you away at about how much uh, more likely these are to last than the other ones. They have a couple things in common. 
One of the main things they have in common is they're centered around the person of Jesus Christ. The marriages that last are centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, practically, here's what it looks like when you break it down. Marriages that last contain a husband and wife who separately and together, A, listen to God. What's the best way, what's the easiest way to listen to God, do you think? Right, reading your Bible. They listen. So how do you listen to God regularly? You're in his word, regularly. That, that's how God primarily speaks to us. And so individuals that believe that and are regularly in the word of God do good as individuals, but couples that, that do this together really last. And talk to God. How do you do that? Prayer. So it's Bible reading and prayer. Are you serious? Is that what you're giving us? Is it really? We're going with that, Pastor? Yeah, because it really hasn't changed. A very simple plan. God didn't try to make it complicated. Now, it might seem simplistic, but wait till you hear this. The divorce rate of basic, ordinary, everyday couples that go in with the, the expectation or whatever of, of the things I mentioned before, the list, just secular couples and even Christian couples is 54% right now. 54, 54% of couples are, are not gonna be together. Whether that's a couple years, five, 10 years, somewhere down the line, they're not gonna last. So I don't like those odds. Those aren't very good odds. But they've done this study a couple of times now, over decades. And do you know what the divorce rate is for couples that pray together and study God's word together continuously on a regular marriage? Throughout the, you know what the divorce rate is? <coughs> if we want to go this route where you guess, it'll take all day because there's no way that you're going to get this one. It is one in 1,000. 476. Now some of you, I know you're looking at me right now, you're going, I heard two wows and the rest of you are, I don't believe that. Well, it's true. And, and if some of you go, well, I read the Bible and I pray with my spouse, well, how much? Once? Twice? In the early years? Not anymore? This is continuously, which means obviously Christ is the center of their lives individually and together. And when that is the case and it comes from the heart, I even question the one in there. I think if you, if you both love the Lord and you're together and you're together studying the word and, and, and praying, and you're not gonna get divorced. That's, that's the point. You're gonna stay together. Your marriage is gonna last. So that's those that make it. Then there are those that fail. A couple who don't make it shouldn't really end up being shocked. I, I've done a lot of marriage counseling and when I sit there in front of people, I, I usually see one or sometimes both that just seem to be shell-shocked. You know, when their marriage isn't making it, or when it's really and truly on the rocks. And, and I, I don't think they should be that shocked. I really don't, because it turns out a lot of times that they've really set out on a plan, unknowingly, but a perfect path for destruction. I mean, they couldn't have laid it out any better as, than if they just signed a paper with Satan and said, here, you plan our marriage. I mean, it's, it's leading over a cliff. And, but when it happens, when they're falling, when they're in midair and they're separating and they seem shocked. This I do want you to write down. It's an old Maxwell, John Maxwell saying, and it's absolutely true, it applies to a lot of things in life, it applies to marriage. Watch this, failing to plan is planning to fail. Failing to plan is planning to fail. But I wanna add something to that. Failing to follow God's plan for marriage at best is planning for mediocrity in marriage. Now, why didn't you say, Pastor Rob, I don't get that. You just said uh, failing to plan is planning to fail, so why wouldn't it be planning to fail? Well, because Christians, sometimes they're a little bit idealistic, and, and I'm gonna just throw this out there. Sometimes Christians will say, when you're following the Lord, 
uh, Christians are always blessed, thriving, wealthy, happy, popular, all the time. That's not true, gang. That's not true. That leaves out the scriptures that talk about taking up the cross and following the Lord and, and, and not looking back or being not worthy for the kingdom of God. If you, if you look back and you have your sort of foot in both worlds and, and, and it neglects all the scriptures that talk about the pain and the trials and how God goes you through that, that's not realistic. And gang, I'll be honest, I've seen couples that are not Christians who seem to have a pretty decent marriage. Haven't you? Haven't you guys seen that? So let's be realistic. It's not like if you don't know the Lord, you will kill each other year three. And that's, that's not the deal. But I will say this. The best marriages I've ever seen, those that are thriving, it's two believers that, like I said, love the Lord and center their relationship individually and together around him. It's always that way. A couple of weeks ago, I told you about four Greek words for love, but there's only one possible with a Christian, and that's agape. Self-sacrificing, others-focused love is only possible with the Holy Spirit living in your heart. Well, that kind of thriving marriage that we're going to talk about in the series that we've been talking about is only possible for believers. That's why the best marriages I've seen have Christ at the center. So you want to know what God's plan is for you? I'm going to give it to you. Here it is. God's plan for you is found in Jeremiah 29, 11. I really don't think this is just something for Jeremiah saying to the Israel, this is God's, this is what God wants, your, your Abba, your Heavenly Father, your Daddy wants for you. God says, I know the plans I have for you, he declares, plans for welfare, and some of you are like, I don't want to be on welfare. No, it doesn't mean that. It means your well-being. It means your well-being. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God's not out to get you. God's not saying, hey, watch this, I'm going to have these two people get married. <laughs> this could be miserable. No, God wants you to have a good, thriving marriage. And so you look at even some Christian couples and they don't have that. I want to tell you why. You're going you're to love this because it's so simple. And the reason you're going to love it is because it's real easy if your marriage is not on track to turn it, get it back on track. That's the really good news today. So there's two kinds of wonder. This sermon's called The Wonder Years, by the way, if you want to write that down. There's two kinds of wonder, though. And the first kind, I'm ashamed to admit, is one that a lot more women are in tune to than guys. So I'm gonna have my wife talk about the first kind of wonder. Would you give a warm welcome to Michelle as she comes up and shares this part? All right, hang on a second. By warm welcome, I don't mean 10 times better than you ever give me, okay? Just, just I have feelings. Well, it is good to be here today, and we wanna start off by talking about the wonder years. And, uh, you know, that starts actually when you first start dating somebody, when you first meet someone, really. Rob and I had a fabulous, uh, fast-paced, fun, action-adventure courtship. We did everything together. Rob taught me how to play tennis, and I introduced him to cycling. And then we went on to different music styles, music taste. Uh, he actually got me to like country music. As long as there's not too much of a twang with it, I'm good with that. And I rekindled his love for rock and roll and even ignited with him a little like for classical music. Little. Little, little. We hiked together. We um, just did everything together. We even went grocery shopping together. We went to church together. We led Bible studies together. We prayed together. But my favorite thing that Rob and I did together when we were dating is we talked. We would talk 
all night, and then Rob would leave my house to drive home. He'd get home, because we didn't really have cell phones then. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And Wait a minute, we had cell phones. I didn't have of, one. They were like that big, but we yeah. had them. I mean, we had cell phones. <laughs> Not as good as we have today. Wow. Well, then he would get home, and he'd call me again, and we would talk. And I would lay in bed talking to him, and then I would fall asleep <laughs> while he was talking, only to wake up. To, remember those old corded phones? They give you that fast, busy signal, and they're off the hook. That's what would wake me up, and I would knew, okay, he's not there anymore. So anyway, Rob... Usually I was still there. I was still talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> Rob quickly became my Prince Charming and, and my best friend. And I do have many wonderful memories of our wonderful wonder years. Rob was so amazing, and everything he did was perfect. Wow. Guys, let's bow and pray, and let's just close this. Because <laughs> it's going to go. That's a great way. Go ahead. Here, there's bad coming. Yeah, we've got to stay. There's more, there's more coming. Um, but anyway, on our honeymoon, and, and I won't forget this moment, because this was just the coolest thing to me. I remember Rob calling from our hotel room. He was making reservations for dinner, and he said, hi. He says, I'd like to make reservations for me and my wife. It was the first time I heard him say that. <gasps> my heart jumped. I was his wife. You know, that was like the coolest thing, to hear him call me his wife. This knight in shining armor was mine. And even when we got back to Charlotte, Things were just so wonderful because I remember telling a girlfriend, I'm like, this is so cool. It's like being on the best date ever, only it never ends. He never has to go home. So it's important. I really did feel that way. I know. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Have we met? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when a couple gets married, there, there is so much to learn about each other. Not just the immediate and the obvious things, your favorite foods, your musical tastes. Um, good ideas for holidays, and so on and so on. There are deeper things that make each of us mysterious and actually very special. The Wonder Years include getting to know older family stories. You know, the family stories that are told and retold again. Sorrows, heartaches, and disappointments from the past. You know, the tales of the exotic cousin, weird Uncle Al, um, the aunt who wrote books, or the great-grandfather who may have even cheated in business. Such stories shape our imaginations, and they condition our reactions to new situations. So when you join someone else's family, it takes time to learn how it all works together and how you process this. Um, often you can only make sense of what someone says or what they do when you get to know these older, deeper stories that shaped them from their earliest days. Don't skip this part of the wonderful years. It makes for a strong foundation in your marriage. In fact, I'm already preparing myself for the chance that Rob and I might receive the Singleton's sacred Cherokee painting. Mm -hmm. Did Rob ever tell you he was part Cherokee? Yeah, he is, and oh, he's... Yeah. 164th Cherokee, and he's very proud to be Cherokee. Um, he will never have reservation status at 164th, but he's still very proud of being a Cherokee. Okay, is anybody Cherokee here? Anybody part Indian? And you're all Cherokee, right? No? Okay, listen, I'm proud of being an Indian. I'm proud of my Cherokee heritage. He is, and so is his family. He's got, they've got this huge, huge Cherokee painting 
that will be passed down eventually to Rob or one of his siblings. Now, when I say huge, um, they've also got a velvet Elvis, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> making this stuff up. So we know that eventually it could end up in our home. And when I say huge, you know the artists who um, park by the side of the road and they sell their artwork out of the back of their 1975 Chevy Impala? This could have come out of that car. It could, except it's so big, it's the size of the Chevy Impala. <laughs> I've had nightmares about us getting the painting and then his family come to visit and I didn't hang it in the family room and what they might do to me. Not good. But wait, 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 let me back up. Not only am I 164th, which is debatable, I think I'm 132nd, to be honest with you, Cherokee, but my great-great-grandfather was a Cherokee Indian chief. <laughs> and this is not just a picture of a Cherokee, it's a Cherokee Indian chief with all the feather headdressing, even a little tear coming out. I'm not sure what that's all about. But it's not really our decor, so go on. Anyway, because I do um, love Rob and his family, and I understand how his family operates, I care about this very much, okay? But the wonder years is where you pick up on these things. Ephesians 4, 2 through 3 tells us to be completely humble and patient, um, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is grace-based, and during the wonder years of your relationship, it's fairly easy to be humble and gentle and patient with each other. Everything is new and fresh and exciting, and love is still somewhat blind, so you might not even notice that your spouse has any quirks in their personality. The Rosbergs with Family Life Coaches tell us that there are four things that if you just will take them in, and adjust them even 10 degrees, you can be on the path to having a wonderfully connected, grace-filled marriage where there is love in the home. Number one is to accept differences. You know, we hear this a lot, but it's not always easy to put into practice. Just because it's difficult, though, doesn't cancel out its importance. The first thing we need to do to create homes filled with grace is to give our mates the room to be different. And we start off with one major difference. Men and women are different. Ladies, your husband is not your girlfriend, nor do you want him to be. You want him to be masculine and winsome and romantic, but a man is going to express himself differently than us girls do. He's not a woman, and indeed, you are not a man. There's other differences, too. Not long after Rob and I were married, I realized we had at least one big one, I am a list person. I like lists. Any of you out there like your list? You write things down. I love wait, wait, a do list. Do you write them down for yourself or for your spouse? Okay, because there's a big difference in that. Go ahead. <laughs> I love checking things off my list. You and know, it mine. gives me a feeling of accomplishment. And honestly, if something doesn't make my list, it might not get done. Out of sight, out of mind. But early in our marriage, Rob was telling me of all the things he had to do. There was so much, how was he ever going to get it done? So out of my desire to help him, I made a list of the things that he just told me he needed to do. Well, Rob looked at my list. He looked at me. He crumpled up my list, and he said, please. Yeah, ooh, it was, it was not good. He said, please don't ever make me a list again. I don't do lists. Okay? And I knew. I didn't say ever. 
ever. I said, please. Ever. Please, sweetie, don't make me. No, ever. I knew he meant it, and I never made him a list. But here, here's something that's interesting. A couple years later, I found out that lists were a recurrent source of conflict with his parents. Their marriage ended in divorce. It was very tumultuous. And just the thought of lists brought back to Rob some painful memories. So anyway, pay attention to those details. Well, number two on my list, this is for the list people, not for you, Rob, um, is to be vulnerable. Okay? In a grace-based home, both spouses need to be vulnerable with each other. This means taking off our mask. It means owning up to our hurts and taking responsibilities in areas we've been critical, harsh, or where we've been more authoritarian instead of grace-based. Number three is to allow mistakes. When we work on our marriages, introducing new skills and truths into our relationship, sometimes we fool ourselves into expecting perfection. But your home needs to be a safe place, a place where you're allowed to make mistakes. And in a grace-based home, you know, we realize that our mates are not perfect. They're not going to be perfect. But also, we need to realize that our mates are not our enemies. Hmm. Rob is not my enemy. He's actually the love of my life. Okay? An exercise I encourage married couples to do is to look back, and Rob and I do this, look back over the week and think, where do I need to go to my spouse and say to them, you know, I came down on you too hard. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? You can make mistakes because I've made mistakes too. In all these areas, allowing differences, vulnerabilities, and mistakes, we must be candid. And that brings us to number four, tell the truth. We are told in Ephesians 4.15 to always tell the truth, but that we must also surround the truth in love. Mm. This helps us grow more like Christ. So here is the goal. In your candidness, make sure that your mate always comes out feeling stronger. When you tell them the truth, when you speak it in love, make sure they feel stronger and not beat up, broken down. Even when telling the truth is difficult, tell the truth because Jesus says to, and be sure to season it with love. This creates a genuineness in your marriage that will make your mate feel secure. When you demonstrate these four elements, you will have a connected marriage, a grace-based home, and even with imperfections and quirkiness, the whole deal, the stuff works. And when Rob and I were first married, he must have had flaws, but honestly, I didn't remember them. Hmm. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Did you uh, believe we shot that last week? <laughs> that was 10 plus years ago. Well, listen, there is, uh, <laughs> there, there's two kinds of wonder. She just talked about wonderful, but honestly, and guys, you probably relate to this more. There's another kind of wonder, and by that I'm talking about, I wonder what happened to me. 
I wonder what's going on. It's the clueless kind of wondering that happens to a lot of marriages when there was no thought, no planning, no preparing, no foundation laid before people got into marriage. And things hit and everything comes across like, I didn't expect this. Here's some of the things I often hear. I wonder what happened to that guy or gal that I dated. Don't raise your hand if you ever felt that way, but I hear that a lot when I'm in. Well, he's not the one I dated. He's not the same person. She's not the same gal. They've changed. I wonder why marriage is so hard. Don't marriages look easy when you look at somebody else? I mean, you get into yourself, you go, I can't believe this. Is, it should be simple. I wonder if I missed my soulmate. Don't use that word around me, by the way, soulmate. I, it just grates me. It's such a cheesy thing. I wonder why my husband wants sex all the time. I wonder why my wife doesn't want sex all the time. What has happened? I wonder how come my spouse doesn't show affection anymore. I wonder how come everything I do is never enough. I wonder why you don't appreciate me. I wonder why you sit around why I do all the work. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. It's the clueless thing. It's as though you had some sort of fantasy idea about marriage and weren't ready for the real deal at all. For anybody experiencing frustration in marriage, there's a list. And you already know how I feel about lists. But there's kind of a subconscious list that you bring in with you. <coughs> the lists are different, but they have one thing in common. They're part of the wonder years as in clueless. There are lists that happen that didn't have to happen. Reasons this happens. This is something I do want you to get down. Write these down. There's real obvious reasons why it happened. <coughs> Excuse me. First of all, they didn't get to know each other. Some people are like, are you kidding? I dated her for a couple years, but did you really get to know her? All about her, her past, things that make her the way she is, his past, things that make him do the things he does, think the way he does. Did you really get to know him? Or did you jump right into the physical part of the relationship, which so many do today. Uh, some people spend all their time and effort, you know, when they finally do get close and they get engaged and they decide they're going to get married, what do they spend 24-7, especially the woman, on? Planning. They're planning for that half-hour ceremony, right? And yet when I get together with people and I say, are you going to do marriage counseling? Are you going to really prepare for this thing? Oh, no, we haven't, we haven't really found time for that. Well, the very thing that's going to last forever, they're not preparing for. The thing that's going to last 30 minutes for, they're putting everything into that. So really shouldn't be so shocked. And the final one, that I, and there's more, but the one I want to kind of key in on because I think in America especially we do this a lot and we've got to stop. In fact, if young people listening, you've got to stop doing this because this is probably one of the things that's causing the biggest problems. We present a false persona. We present a false persona. Like the girl you meet for the first thing that comes out of her mouth, here's the deal. I don't like women, I never like to date women that were dramatic. You know, I don't like a lot of drama, and I didn't really catch on to how it works, but I, I, I was watching this guy actually um, about a week ago on TV, and I think he's on to something. He said, I agree with him. When you meet, and it's usually a girl, I'm not picking on girls, but hear me out. When you, if, raise your hand, by the way, guys, if you love drama. That's what I thought. <laughs> I'm not even gonna ask, I'm not even gonna ask the lady, because you won't raise your hand, but, uh, but I, I believe a lot of you do like drama. So if you want to date a girl that doesn't like drama, here's a clue that you've made a really bad mistake. If the first thing coming out of her mouth is, I just want you to know right off the bat that I'm not into all that drama. <laughs> you've, you've made a huge mistake because she is into all, here's what the guy would say, I completely agree. It's not scientific, the poll or anything, but he says, you know, check it out. The women that do that, they're going to answer, seriously, they're going to answer in a way that's dramatic. I just, I mean, right off the bat, other people might be, I'm not into all that drama. Well, if you're not into all that drama, why don't you just sing it? Like it's a musical or something. 
I mean, this guy was a comedian talking about it. I'm listening and going, but that's true. That's trying to present a false persona as something that you're not. Listen, if you're dramatic, find somebody that's into acting and Broadway and date that person. But don't find somebody that you really like and is everything you're not and say, well, I really want that person, so I'm going to lie about who I am. Because that's just going to lead to problems down the road. Uh, we met a couple years and years ago, and uh, when they were dating, she was talking about how, well, he was a college baseball player, and she was talking about how she really, really wanted to get to know this guy, she thought she'd marry him. Well, they did get married, and we're going out, and they're talking about how they met, and she's relating uh, stuff about how he's so into baseball. He was a shortstop in college when they met, and so <coughs> she was not, but she was howling when she's telling the story. Just cracking up. She's saying, I learned things about RBIs and, and uh, ERA, and that's not the Equal Rights Amendment, or anything. It's the pitching and baseball, all these facts. And he was just amazed. His favorite team would come on. And I'm like, oh, that's my favorite team. So I memorized these things. To, and we, I would sit uh, at his apartment and watch baseball games. And, and she's like, you know, but she's watching these baseball games to let him think that she's really into baseball. And she's cracking up as she goes into details about how she just basically snowed him about the baseball thing, laughing hysterically. But I keep looking over at the guy, and, and he's, you know, like caressing the baseball cap he had on, taking it off. He's not even moving except for an eye twitch that's kind of sitting in there. And, and I look, but one thing, he's not laughing. He wasn't laughing like she was at any of the parts of the story. And I'm going, you know what, that's, that wasn't you. Because she talked about how I can't stand baseball, I'm not into it at all. So why did you try to present something that's not really you. And here's why I think that that happens, gang. It's very important that you get that. I think, well, let me tell you what guys do, first of all. A lot of guys, when they date women, this isn't entirely bad, but they can take it too far. They try to be that Hollywood leading man, right? You try to be very polite. You try to you, you dress and groom yourself like you probably never will again. You know, for those dates, you act so gentlemanly, you open the door, you're very polite, and if all that goes away because that's not really you, sort of setting her up, right? Why do we do this? Now, some of you, especially ladies, you're not going to like this, but if you will listen, I think you'll find some help for your relationships. I think we do this because we're after something that we've, we've sort of bought is a, is a dream thing. It's not really real. We're after happily ever after. That's what we're after. Those are the stories we grew up with. Those are the things that we think are perfection. That's what we want in a marriage. And we're chasing happily ever after. And we want to make sure that if happily ever after is going to be the thing we want, well, if I want happily ever after with Michelle, then I, I, want, I want to make sure that I'm not the one that torpedoes this thing. I want to make sure that in the, she's my Snow White, so I don't want to play the role of the poison apple, right? I don't want to be the one that... that ruins this thing, so I'll, I'll play the role of Prince Charming. Do I have those names right, by the way? Once Upon a Time aficionados, do I have, okay. Prince Charming, Snow White. So I got some good news for you. If you've done this or you've thought this, I'm not completely just throwing happily ever after out, I'm just being realistic. The good news is you're not gonna play that role of the poisoned apple. So you don't have to worry about that. The bad news is the fantasy world itself is the poison apple. That is the poison apple. Joshua Lieberman said, and they lived happily ever after is one of the most tragic sentences in all of literature. It's tragic because it's false. It's a myth that has led generation after generation to expect something from marriage that's really not even possible. Some of you going, thanks, Pastor Rob, for this cheery message. Well, hear me out. 
There's, I'm not going to go into all the things that lead to this. Let me give you the four basic misconceptions that lead to this and that are going to cause huge problems down the road if, if you don't get it. Write these down. Four of the most common and harmful misconceptions about marriage are we expect exactly the same things from marriage. Well, I don't get it. What's that? I mean, you go into marriage and you think, well, in this scenario, when this happens, when we get in the, with the relatives, as far as how we handle money, all that, I'm sure Michelle feels exactly the same way that I do about these things. Assuming that is a dangerous and harmful misconception about marriage. It's a fantasy thing. It's not the way at all. I mean, raise your hand if any one of you, if, raise your hand if you're married. Now keep them up if any misconception ever hit in any area that you weren't expecting. Keep your hand up. And that's everybody. I need to put mine up. I mean, where you like, well, don't you feel this way about finances? I mean, Michelle is a saver. Absolutely saves everything. I'm, I'm like, hey, look at that. Uh, let's buy it. And I mean, I'm just, I, that's more me. But I assumed, I don't know why, kind of assumed she's like, that. well, that's going to be an area of friction if I don't know that, right? This means yes? Okay. Oh, wow. And that, that means you're really, okay, cool. Um, don't know what that means. Number two, everything good in our relationship, once we get married, is going to get better. Not necessarily. Everything good in our dating relationship, in our engagement relationship, we get married, it's just going to get better. Wow. That's a myth. Gang, that's a myth in Christianity as a whole. <coughs> it's a myth in Christianity as a whole. And there are teachers, and even very, very famous Bible teachers on TV that'll teach, you know, Jesus came to make you healthy. Well, I mean, he came to give you complete comfort and to take away all your aches and pains and to just make your life a cake ride. And, you know, if that's true, then there's this little thing called death that messes it up. Pretty bad, right? I mean, look, Jesus did come to bring that, and that's called heaven. And one day, as a believer, when you die and you see him face to face, you'll be like him. The Bible says that. But this ain't heaven. Have you noticed? This is not heaven. I've noticed. And so if you try to make earth into heaven, that's a fantasy. That's only going to lead to disappointment if you go after that. So everything good's not going to get better. If everything good to you is not addressed and you don't understand it with your spouse, it's going to get worse, actually. Number three, everything bad in our relationship will simply disappear. Will simply disappear when we get married. You know, for some reason I thought of this, there's a lot of examples I could have given in Scripture, but I remember when the Apostle Paul, who at one point, he, listen to this, Peter and John, I don't know if Paul was involved in this one, but at one point the Holy Spirit was so powerful to them with the gift of healing that they were walking by people who had infirmities in the book of Acts, and the Bible tells us that even when their shadow passed over people, they were healed. Raise your hand if you've ever read that little passage. Well, only a couple of you, some of you are going, where, where's that at? Look it up in Acts, it's incredible. Even there, God was so much with them. At the same time, the Apostle Paul, who healed people, even raised one guy. One guy was listening to his sermon, and he was sitting in an upper window, and he, and he fell and died. Hit his head and died, because he fell asleep. I can relate to that with some of you. He preached really long, <laughs> he fell asleep, and Paul went there and raised him. He was dead, and he raised him. Okay, but Paul had something that happened to him that was torturous, that was so painful, that bothered him so much. We don't know what it is, but we do know that he prayed to have God take it away. And God, God said no. And it bothered Paul so much, you don't really see Paul acting like this much. He prayed again, begging God to take it away. God said no. And a third time, Paul said, I, I can't function like this. Please take this away. And God said no. Why didn't he just heal himself? Doesn't God just want perfect harmony? You don't? No, it won't simply go away. God simply said this. Paul, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. You don't need me to 
completely clear your path. You don't need me to take away every ache and pain. How are you going to grow? In fact, how are you going to rely on me? In fact, how are you going to remain humble? If I take every single thing away and make your life a cakewalk, my grace is sufficient for you. And then number four, my spouse will make me whole. I'm not going to say a lot about this, but this is the dumb Tom Cruise theory, right? You complete me, that's what this deal is. That's false. Your spouse is not there to complete you. When the Bible says the two will leave father and mother, two will cleave together and become one, it doesn't mean that you disappear. And it doesn't mean that I have a hole in my heart shaped like Michelle. And she completes me. The two will become one, because, but we're also individual in our personality. The only thing that can fill the hole in your heart in that void is Jesus Christ. That's the only one that can fill it. If you try to fill that with your spouse, you're setting yourself up for a fantasy land failure. Won't happen. So with these marriage challenges then, how do we make the honeymoon last? You know, one tradition that Rob and I had in our wedding was the lighting of the unity candle. Any of you guys have the unity candle in your wedding too? Good, yeah. So you know what I'm talking about here. And it's a beautiful way of symbolizing how Jesus views marriage. Um, in fact, Jesus tells us in Mark 10, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. It's this whole idea of oneness. How do you keep that oneness in marriage alive when one or both spouses get clueless? You know, it's easy for couples to catch a virus, and Dr. Dobson talks about four deadly viruses that can lead to a sick, unhealthy marriage by promoting anger and destroying communication. Number one is you withdraw from each other. You stop talking, you kind of disengage, you know, choose to do other things that don't involve the spouse. Number two is escalation. And that's where um, the volume of your discussions get a little louder, your heartbeat starts to beat a little faster. Um, number three is when you belittle your spouse. And belittling can occur in words and deeds and body action, body language. Uh, number four is seeing more negative than there really is. In counseling, this is called confirmation vice. And what that means is the more negative you see, the more you think you see. And your mind kind of runs away with this till all of a sudden, all you're seeing is negative and that very person who is not your enemy, who is the love of your life. So do any of these re uh, viruses remind you of you and your spouse? Well, if they do, I have good news. God's word gives us hope, always. His word gives us hope. It is the medicine that we need to squash these four viruses. Ephesians or 2, 31 and through 32 say this, okay? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That sounds like grounds for a grace-based marriage to me. I recall a moment when Rob and I were having a, what would you say, lively discussion? Uh, Nathan was four at the time, and Rob's voice was getting louder, my voice was getting louder, and we weren't backing down, neither one of us. It was obvious to Nathan that we had caught this old escalation virus. And Nathan rounded the corner in his little red Power Ranger suit, 
um, and boldly declared, Be ye kind to one another. It was his preschool Bible verse for the week. But how humbling for us to have a four-year-old point out to us that we were falling prey to this escalation virus. Chuck Swindoll says that grace needs to be applied daily to our marriage. He says it is the oil that lessens the friction in marriage. And there's going to be friction in marriage. That's part of it. But this demonstration of grace should be mutual, extended to both parties, by both parties. It results in mutual equality, mutual dignity, mutual humility, and mutual destiny. While this may have been very well understood in days gone by, generations past, it seems more and more view marriage today as a matter of convenience or what kind of mood you're in. When the benefits of convenience or the mood wear out, so goes the marriage. But that's, that's not the way God planned it. With God's grace in our marriage, there's lasting benefits. So what does grace look like in a marriage? Grace loves and serves. Grace gives and forgives. It keeps no record of wrong. It releases and affirms. Grace supports and encourages. And grace values the dignity of the other person. Here are two practical applications that couples can do to counter these viruses. Number one is to honor your mate. List on a piece of paper the things that are valuable about your spouse and look at it daily. Now, in my case, I can't let Rob see my list. Um, however, it might be easier for you, but look at that list and tell your spouse about what you value in them. And do this more than just on Valentine's Day, okay? Periodically, it's a great exercise to do. And the second thing is participate in love talk. Love talk is L-U-V talk. L for listen, U for understand, and V for validate. I think many arguments could be avoided when we listen to our spouse and try to really understand their concerns and their issues. And then validation is the form of repeating back what you've heard your spouse say to let them know that you really have listened. One practice that Rob and I have maintained throughout the years is we talk and we talk daily. And when our kids were young, we had to teach our children to respect this mommy-daddy talk time because kids will try to steal your time, your attention. They will bombard you with interruptions, distractions, but they can learn to honor their parents with this mommy-daddy talk time. So I encourage you to take at least 20 minutes, just 20 minutes a day, to attend to each other, listening, understanding, validating, and honoring one another. Again, the Bible gives us the antivirus medicine and ensures that our marriages will be grace-based and thrive in unity and oneness. One of my favorite verses is in Colossians 3, and it says, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
You know, I like to meditate on this verse, and one of my favorite things to do when I meditate on a verse is I put my name inside that verse, I'll insert my name, and turn that verse into a prayer. So for me, this may sound like this. God, help me to have a heart of compassion for Rob. Help me to be kind to Rob. Show him humility and patience and gentleness. Help me to forgive Rob. And beyond all this, Lord, Help me to put on love at all times so that we do not break your bond of perfect unity. If you do this, you will be on your way to extending the honeymoon in your marriage. Guys, do me a favor. Um, just got a few minutes left together. Put your pens down or anything else you're doing. Just look up here. Um, it's so important to me to communicate to you that if we'll learn these basic things, you know, because I've counseled so many people that I'm sitting there going, wow, I'm hearing your story and going, uh, you set yourself up for this. I mean, the shock and, and, the, and the non-realizing that the, the path you took would lead to this is baffling to me. But I've put that aside because that's just the way it is. I remember I was watching a, um, I don't remember what the show was, but I downloaded a couple of them because I thought it was, guys would love this. It was some kind of obstacle course thing, incredibly brutal that uh, you had to go through like 17 stages to be the ultimate warrior, those kinds of things. And you know, it was like, uh, you know, monkey bar things, but they're really far, swinging on these deals and you had to catch the next one. You ever seen stuff like that? Come on guys, you ever seen that? And then uh, some of it was like putting pegs in this wall and then you have to pull yourself up, put the other peg in there. I mean, I do this stuff every day, so some of you guys might not, <laughs> just really. So I'm looking at this, but I'm going, but, and there's like 17 deals, and they had these guys that were just ripped doing this, and you'd think anyone could get through, but none of them got past like seven or eight on this deal, and then one guy got pretty far. I noticed that this guy was so focused on what he was doing, he was never looking down, but when they were looking down, uh, I thought, well, it was no big deal, there, there's water, warm, you know, like jacuzzi water, they fall in, anybody, anybody ever been to that trampoline place where you bounce off the walls and all that, a real fun deal, town, none of you guys been here? I know you guys have been, I took some of you to it. Well, you can go on these little trampolines and do flips because you land in this pile of styrofoam blocks. It's impossible to get hurt. Impossible, I mean, you can do flips, you can, you can dive in on your head and you're not gonna get hurt, you just land in a, well, they had different places to fall on this course like that. And it wasn't working, nobody was making it. So you wanna make this thing work? Stick alligators in there. I mean, fill, fill the water with alligators, put great white shark in that thing, and I promise you all the guys are going to get through that thing. Nobody's going to fail when you realize the damage that's on the other end. And marriage is like that. If we realize that what's going to happen to our kids, if we realize that the grass is not greener on the other side, if we realize the heartache, we realize the brutal stuff that's coming, then maybe we'd make it. So I want to give you some things as we close out that will help you to plan so that you can last in marriage and not have to become... A statistic. The good news is, gang, it ain't over till the fat lady sings, and the fat lady doesn't sing that much. She, may, she has less concerts than Barbara Streisand. So here's the stuff that we want to give here. Here's another good thing going for you. God's going to help you. God's going to help you in your marriage. If you're a believer, he's right there with you. For a couple of reasons. One, he loves you, and two, he hates divorce. Really, God hates divorce, but he allows for it. Yeah, there's a couple of exceptions, but he doesn't want it. Even when those exceptions occur, like adultery and all, but how do, I, how do I know God hates divorce? Because Malachi 2.16 has God speaking, and here's what he says. I hate divorce. I'm not that sharp, but that was a fairly good clue for me. 
I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. God of the angel armies, in case you confuse them with another God, says I hate divorce. I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down. Don't cheat. <coughs> and if the God of the universe hates divorce and loves his children, then I think it's fair to say that if you're in a tumultuous marriage, he'll help you. He'll help you. If you both love him and want this thing to work, he'll help you make it work. But some of you might not feel that way right now. You might have come here today and, you know what, I wish that we didn't have the bad weather, so more folks would have come out that really need this. But I think sometimes when it's hopeless and you've kind of given up on God, two or three snowflakes, and you, you want to stay home. You don't think you're going to really... So maybe if you've got friends, couples that you know need to hear this, and get this down right here. Here's a couple of things to help you regain focus as you fight for your marriage. A couple of these I say when I do wedding ceremonies. First thing, change the locks. Write that down. You can pick your pens back up now. Write that down. Change the locks. When we get married, we lock the door of our marriage from the inside. I mean, we lock the door, I'm sorry, from the outside. In other words, we can't get, we, we're going to hit a, a locked door, and there's no way for us to unlock it there. It's on the other side. And nobody out there's got a key, so you're trapped, is what I'm saying. Have that mentality. Now that we are married, it's locked from the outside. We're in this for good. Number two. Take one word out of your vocabulary. You can't say it. Take divorce out of your vocabulary. Stop saying that. Stop threatening it. We don't get along. Well, maybe we should just get a divorce. Pretty soon you're going to wear each other down with that word because it's too easy for our culture. Remember what I've seen about the guy on the monkey bars and all that following it? What put sharks in there? Well, it's the same thing with when you, we go into marriage and we have the fluffy little styrofoam balls. That would be things like prenuptial agreements, right? What does that say? When you make a prenuptial agreement, when Donald Trump makes a prenuptial agreement with the women that he's going to marry, what does that say? I don't plan on staying with you, and I don't trust you, and I don't think this is going to last. Well, then, like a self-fulfilling prophecy, it doesn't. Or, you know what, we can all, you know, we live in a state, it's a no-fault state. Well, gang, if you're about to get divorced, there's fault on both sides. There's no such thing as a no-fault divorce, but we make it so easy it's like putting the styrofoam balls in there and, and it's going to be a light, fluffy landing, but it's anything but. So take the word divorce out. Number three, delete your high school flame from Facebook. Okay? Better. Number four, delete Facebook. How about you just do that, okay? I mean, because, you know what, gang? The divorce rate used to be 50 just a few years ago. It's gone up again. Did you know that? It's ticking up into the mid-50s. Why? Well, most people think it's because of things like Facebook. Because people are rediscovering folks that they probably should leave in their past through things like, you know, it used to be MySpace and then Facebook. Places we shouldn't go. Avenues that help us to lose our focus when our focus should just be on our mate and on our spouse. Those are simple things, but they work. We're going to give you some practical things next week. In the next two weeks, we're going to hone on this a little bit more and talk about how we really make it last into the golden years. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time to be able to get up here like I love the most and, and give your word and give some practical things to folks with my wife, Michelle, of 17 plus years. Lord, thank you for bringing her into my life. Thank you for the perfect compliment she is to me. Lord, and thank you that you're at the center of our marriage. And God, that, I make no, I have no illusions about why we've lasted. That's why, Father. And thank you that I love her more today, truly, and you know this is true, than even the day that we met. God, I also know that in a, even a crowd this size, there's got to be, if statistics are anywhere near close, there has to be people sitting here hanging by a thread or even people that didn't come because they don't even want to hear this. 
So I pray as they listen to the podcast or I pray as they hear these words now, they'll at least give their marriage these simple steps today. At least give that a try uh, before trying these other options that in your eyes, Father, are no option at all. Help us as I pray each week to internalize what we've learned, Lord, for changes in our life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.